0: Jesus then went out and was praying on the Mount of Olives. Jesus wrapped up his prayer and now we come to this passage. So they're out on the Mount of Olives. Just finished praying. And verse 47 reads, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And Luke here doesn't tell us who who it was that cut off the, the high priest's ear, but John in his gospel tells us it was Peter. You can just imagine what Peter is thinking here. The disciples have just come from the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, Jesus had said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter, when Jesus had said that to him, he insisted, right, that, Lord, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to do anything. I will not reject you. I will do whatever it takes. And now this crowd shows up with spears and clubs, and the disciples are clearly outnumbered. If they stand and fight, they will lose. can just imagine Peter. He wants to prove to Jesus that he's not going to back down. He's willing to do whatever it takes to defend Jesus. And so without waiting for Jesus to answer the question whether or not they should use swords, Peter grabs his and strikes the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Peter wants to show, wants to prove that he's not going to be the denier that Jesus says he is. But Jesus didn't want that. In verse 51 he says, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officer to the the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come to me with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And as I, I read this passage, and I, I think about all the things that have taken place in the Gospel of Luke like, leading up to this. like think about all the things that have happened in the life of Jesus leading up to this. Like, I can't help but wonder, like, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? How did it happen that one of Jesus' closest friends would betray him? Not just betray him, but betray him with a kiss, with a, a sign of friendship. How did we reach the point where the religious leaders of Israel wanted Jesus killed? How do we get to the point where the religious leaders wanted Jesus out of the picture so badly they were willing to pay 20 pieces of silver, right? not an insignificant amount of money, 20 pieces of silver to make it happen? How do we get here? From outside perspective, like none of it makes any sense. How did this happen? But then I think about stories of sinful behavior that you hear in the news all the time. Scandals and affairs and criminal activities. Or even think about the sin in my own life. Think about the sinful behavior of those around me and none of that makes much sense either. Sin has this ability to worm its way into people's hearts and cause them to act in horrible ways that don't make sense. And ultimately, the story of the arrest of Jesus here is a picture of that. The arrest of Jesus is a picture of the insidiousness of sin. We're going to look at a couple aspects of just how insidious sin is in this passage. and the first one, we look at it that sin is insidious because sin is illogical. We see this in a couple places in this passage. First, there's the fact that Judas wants to betray Jesus at all. Judas has walked with Jesus, spent time with Jesus, day in and day out for three years. And Jesus, because he is the sinless son of God, has never done anything to unjustifiably offend Judas. He's never said an unjustified harsh word to Jesus. He's never mistreated Judas in any way. He's literally been a perfect friend to Judas. And yet, Judas decides to betray the best, the most perfect friend there ever was. It makes no sense. It's illogical. We see, the Illogicalness of sin again as the rest of this passage plays out. After Peter cuts off the high priest servant's ear, Jesus stops the disciple from fighting and he immediately heals the ear. He he reached out, he touches the man's ear, and it's miraculously healed. This is not the man he want to condemn? This is not the man you want to arrest? The crowd is beholding a miracle right in front of their eyes. And instead of praising the miracle worker, instead of being in awe of the miracle, they still seek to arrest him. And not only is the miracle itself incredible, the fact that Jesus would perform this miracle for an enemy For someone from a mob that's coming to arrest him is utterly amazing. Jesus here displays gracious, merciful love for his enemies. And yet the religious leaders and the mob want to arrest him as if he's a violent, dangerous criminal. It doesn't make sense. There's no logic here. Even as he's being arrested, Jesus is showing that he has done nothing to deserve the kind of condemnation he is facing. In fact, he does the opposite. Even as he's being arrested, he heals, he loves, he performs mercy by performing this miracle for everyone to see. And yet, the crowd continues in their quest to arrest him. illogical. And each of us has sin like that, that still dwells in us. And as we read this story, as we see the illogical myth of sin, like it should compel us right, to take our own sin seriously. We should read this and understand how insidious the sin that is in us is. And to recognize that we can't defeat sin with good logic, because sin is illogical. Whatever areas of your life where you may find yourself being prone to sinning and rebellion against God. whatever it might be, like you may know, right in the rational part of your brain, that that sin is not good for you. You may know that it's offensive to God. And in your stronger moments, you may tell yourself, like, I'm going to stop that sin because I know it's bad for me. I see all the problems this sin causes in my life. You may tell yourself, like, I'm gonna stop gluttonous overeating because I see the damage it's doing to my body. I'm gonna stop yelling at my kids out of anger because I see the harm that it causes them. I'm going to stop watching inappropriate entertainment because I see how it hurts other people. I'm going to stop seeking and spreading gossip. I'm going to stop making excuses and I'm going to start finding time to read my Bible and pray more because I know my relationship with God is important. I'm going to stop seeking to please others and focus on pleasing God. We've all made promises like that. To ourselves somewhere along the line. We've all said like never again to some behavior or behaviors in our lives. But then later that day, or later in the next week, or a month later, or an hour later, you're tired, and you're frustrated, your self will is a little bit lower than usual. And the next thing you know, that logic goes out the window and you're back to that old sinful behavior. All your logic and your rational reasons for no longer sinning don't work in the long run. Because sin itself is illogical. Sin doesn't care about your rational arguments. We need something more powerful than good logic if we're going to defeat sin in our lives. We'll come back to what that something more powerful is in a few minutes. But for right now, I hope it's just this. I hope that for each of us, we see that sin is an enemy that we can't deal with flippantly. We can't afford to take sin lightly. We must see the seriousness of sin. We must feel the weight of sin. We must feel an urgent and pressing need to put sin to death that remains in our lives. We must not believe the lie. The one I really need to get my sin under control, I'll be able to do it with rationality and logic. Sin doesn't care about your logical reasons. It is illogical. But not only is it illogical, it's also deceptive. Sin is deceptive. We see the deceptive nature here in the passage. just exemplified by Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. Just picture the scene. right, Judas is approaching Jesus with a mob, with clubs and spears behind him. The crowd following Judas is way bigger, way more heavily armed than the disciples. There's no question what Judas is here to do. And he could have just walked up to Judas and said, there he is, get him. But he doesn't do that. He, He comes and he approaches Judas and he gives him a kiss. There's no doubt what's going on. Jesus, earlier that same night, had already foretold that one of his disciples would betray him. Judas was betraying, this, leaving this huge crowd filled with enemies. Like everyone who was watching knew what was going on. And yet, Judas sought to hide his sin, to, to deceive Jesus by kissing him rather than just pointing him out. Likewise, we we see the deceptive nature of sin and the fact that they come to arrest Jesus at night in the garden on the Mount of Olives and not in Jerusalem when he's out in public. Jesus himself points out this deceptiveness. He says, Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. Jesus has been day after day over the last week out in public in Jerusalem right there for all to see. And if the religious leaders of Israel really believed that they were in the right, they had ample opportunity to arrest Jesus in public, in front of watching crowds. But they didn't do it. Because they knew in their hearts they were wrong, that they were sinning. So they desired to hide their sin. They didn't want the public to see what they were up to. And we do the same thing with our sin all the time. We all act differently in private moments than when we're in public. As we get older, maybe we, we learn what is expected of us in terms of our behavior in front of other people. Like we learn how to act in respectable ways learn how to put on a good face for the whole world to see. But it's all, all too often, just an act. When we know that no one's watching, and we know that there is no one we need to deceive with our false righteousness, then sin makes its way to the surface and reveals itself in our lives far too often. One of the things that can make challenging can make parenting young children challenging. Right? It's that, especially young, really young kids, haven't learned how to conceal and hide their sin very well. Right? It's right there on the surface for all to see and there to be dealt with and all this messiness. And so all that can be annoying and, and challenging sometimes because it's all out in the open. it's also, in some ways, easier. Because they're not hiding their sin. The sin is not hidden, so it can be dealt with as it comes up. The far more challenging aspect of parenting is that kids get older and learn how to hide their sin and act the right way when they're being watched. Then you need to find ways of identifying and addressing sin and speaking into sin when it's hidden. That's far more challenging. In the book, Essential Christianity, that some of us are reading, J.D. Greer says, As we grow up, we get better at filtering some of what is down there so it doesn't come out and embarrass us. But just because we don't verbalize something doesn't mean it isn't inside of us. The real, unfiltered us is usually not very pretty. We we hide our sin. We cover it up. We've learned how to put on a good front, but the sin is still in us. And that deceptive nature of sin means that there are probably some of you here today, right now, that when you get home, you're on your own, or you're just with your family, you're going to be wrestling with some serious and harmful sins. You can come here, you can show up and look put together for a couple hours, you can look like you're living a righteous life. But in private, you are dealing with serious sin in your life right now. Maybe you have serious anger issues, or maybe you're addicted to one vice or another. Maybe you're abusing the darker aspect of the internet. Like maybe you're having an improper relationship, like Maybe you spend all your free time on empty empty entertainment. Maybe you're prone to gossip and tearing others down. But some of you here, you're wrestling with serious sin issues right now. I don't know what your struggle is. But I do know like the fact that you're Hiding it means that deep down you know you shouldn't be doing it. I also know that whatever logical, rational reasons you give yourself for stopping, they won't be enough to overcome that sin. Because sin is a deceptive, illogical, insidious enemy. And I know like up to this point right, that this sermon has not been very cheery, it's not been very feel-good. Talking about the arrest of Jesus, there's not a lot of good ways to spin that. But here's the thing. We need to feel the weight. We need to feel the significance of sin. If we're to truly grasp and make sense of and appreciate who Jesus is and the goodness of what He did for us, we need to feel the weight of sin first. If you don't see sin as a problem, if you don't feel deep in your heart the the wicked insidiousness of sin, then Jesus has nothing for you. Jesus did not come to teach us or model for us how to look righteous in public. Jesus came to do what we couldn't do on our own. Jesus came to do what all our logical self arguments and self-effort failed to achieve. Jesus came to defeat sin. And here's the incredible good news that the illogical, deceptive sin that we see in this very passage. Those sins bring about events that mean that your battle against sin is not hopeless. If it depended on you and your own self-effort and your own rule-keeping, it would indeed be hopeless. But because of what takes place here, our fight against sin is not hopeless. Following this arrest of Jesus, he will be given a sham trial. He will be beaten and mocked. And then he will be put to death on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus takes our sin. All that insidious sin it. You know, he takes and he pays the penalty that that sin deserves. He bears God's wrath against all our sins. The penalty that... My pride, and my selfishness, and my greed, and my laziness, and my gluttony, and my lying, and my wicked thoughts. All that they deserve, paid for on the cross. Jesus accepts his arrest. He goes to the cross so that he could take our place. And in exchange for our sinfulness, he gives us his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says... That Jesus, right, who, who knew no sin, He became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. And that's true of us right now. For any of us who have believed in Jesus, we already have received the righteous life of Christ. So that even now, even as we still fight the sin that lingered in our lives, God sees us as if we live the perfect life that Jesus lived. Our faith, Christianity, is not about being righteous enough to earn God's favor. That's what every other religion, every other worldview tells you that if you're good enough, you receive God's favor and blessing. But, But Christianity says, you're already righteous. You've already received God's blessing. You've already received God's favor because of Jesus. Therefore, be what you already are. You are righteous already. Therefore, be righteous. Live righteously. It won't be easy. There's still sin that dwells in our heart that won't be entirely eradicated until we reach eternity. Sin is still an insidious, illogical, deceptive enemy that we will fight to our dying breath. But there are, in the midst of that fight against sin, there are, two more pieces of good news. One is that when we do trust in Jesus, we also receive the Holy Spirit who lives in us and dwells in us. And as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, He gives us power to fight sin. Paul speaks of the the conflict between our, our old sinful nature, which he calls the flesh, and the Holy Spirit. And he writes about it in Galatians 5 when he writes this. For the flesh desired what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. But then he goes on to say right, that the Spirit in us enabled us and empowered us to bear what he called the fruit of the Spirit. He write this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us... Keep in step with the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit in us. We're able to keep in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, He gives us power to fight sin in our lives. You have the power you need to reject sin and instead bear the fruit of the Spirit. Sin will not be defeated by logical arguments, but it can be put to death by the power of the Spirit. But in saying that, don't mean to imply that defeating sin will ever be easy. It is still an insidious enemy. But that brings us to another bit of good news in this path, which is, which is this. Sin's time is limited. At the end of The passage we read today. Jesus is about to be arrested, and he says this. I was with you every day in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. Then he says this. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is darkness is over. It is going to rain, he says. They're gonna win a temporary victory. But here's the thing about an hour a limited amount of time. Right? Hours come to an end. And it's amazing, isn't it, right, that how, how differently time can seem to pass depending on what activity you're doing. Like if I allow myself an hour to watch a TV show or play a game or something, that hour flies by. Right? But if I'm training for a race and my training plan calls for me to run an hour and 15 minutes on a given day, though 15 minutes don't go very well, that last hour feels like an eternity. Or when I was teaching, school got out at 3.15. Like, the window from 2.15 to (laughs) 3.15 felt like it had 300 minutes in it. (laughs) The longest hour ever. But no matter what, the, the hour always ends. Because we live in this sinful, broken world, the the hour of darkness may feel like it drags on, but the hour of darkness will end. The hour of darkness and the reign of sin is coming to an end. There is coming a day when sin will be fully defeated. We no longer have to fight sin in our lives. Sin's defeat started when when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and defeated death. But it will be complete when Jesus returns and he sets all things right. In Revelation 21, John had the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, and he says this, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. All the effects of sin, death, mourning, crying, pain, all the effects of sin, gone. They will be no more. For the old order of things have passed away. There is coming a day when sin will be fully defeated. It will be no more. But until that day comes, we live in this world where sin is... Still present, where sin is still at work in each one of our hearts, and while we wait for that day, we must be prepared to fight sin. The first and most important way we do that is through believing and trust in jesus so if you 're here and you 've never trusted jesus you 've never believe that it is through Jesus taking your place on the cross that your sins can be forgiven. If you've never believed that it's through Jesus that you can be brought back into a right relationship with God, and the first step in defeating sin is trusting in Jesus. If you have questions about what that means, I would be more than happy to talk to you about that. First step is trusting Jesus. Right? If you're here and you're just looking for some self help tips for a way to overcome sin in your own power, and you're looking for a way to, to break bad habits through your own self effort, then like, I have nothing for you. The Bible has nothing for you. You can't defeat sin in your own power. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, I just urge you to do that. those of us who are here who have trusted Jesus, my hope is that this passage would just be a reminder for us to never ever underestimate the the wicked, corrupting, insidious power of sin. Would we never treat sin flippantly? Would you never look at the sin in your own life and say, eh, not a big deal. Would this passage urge you to see your sin for what it is? A rebellion against a God who loved you and who deserved all honor and glory and praise? Would you look at this passage? Would you recognize that apart from Jesus and what he did for you on the cross, you would be Far more like the members of the mob in this story, or far more like Judas than like one of the other disciples. It's only because of Jesus and what he did for you that you're on his side. You were his enemy and he came for you. Or this passage, what it causes, just be amazed. That Jesus would love his enemies so much, that not only would he heal the ear of one of them, but that he would go to the cross, that he would go to his death for each and every one of us when we were still his enemies. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are each of us prone to sin, that none of us is yet perfect, that each of us rebels against you daily. We don't honor you as we should, that we live selfishly, that we sin in many ways. Father, we again just are amazed. you would send your son, that Jesus, you would come, and while we were still your enemies, you would die for us. You would go to the cross, that you would take our sins on yourself in our place. And we had done nothing to deserve it. Did nothing to earn it. You came for us and you died for us. Father, we go now seeking to be what we already are. Thank you that you've made us righteous in your sight because of Jesus' sinless life. So now would we go seeking to live righteously? Would we go aware of the insidiousness of sin in our lives? But Would we go confident there is coming a day when sin will be fully defeated. We will gather around your throne and worship you in the new heaven and the new earth when there is no more death or pain or suffering or sin. Where do we go looking forward to that day? And seeking to bring you all glory and honor and praise until that day comes. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go this morning, would you indeed go aware of the sin that's still at work in you, fighting the sin that is still still at work in you, but also confident that Jesus came to defeat sin and there is coming a day when it will be fully defeated. You are dismissed.
1: He became sin Who knew no sin That we might become His righteousness He humbled himself massage.